Hey. hey. You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show. My name's Amelia. I'm your host for today. And today we have a very cool guest on the show. You might not be expecting a musician, but we got one, which is really awesome. Uh, we've got Steve, who is not only a musician and a music teacher, but he's also a composer who's just sort of a little bit into STEM. Welcome to the show, Steve. G'day. How are you, Amelia? Pretty good for a, a sunny Sunday. Yourself? Oh, isn't it gorgeous outside? I was wondering if you could start with telling us a little bit about what is your job. My job? Ah, well, right at the moment, it's more teaching music. I teach uh, guitar and ukulele and bass and drums. So that's probably the main, main source of my income at the moment. In past years, it's mostly been performing. So I'd be up there one or two or three or four or five nights a week doing something. Also, I'm a composer. So I did spend a decade earning most of my income from composing. And uh, yeah, it's fantastically interesting. I love it to bits. Get up every morning and go, yeah, I'm at work. <laughs> Which is something I think we all strive for, is that kind of, that level of enthusiasm about what we do. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, uh, I'm blessed, I tell you. Absolutely blessed. But, you know, it's a bit of a precarious living. We, we sometimes live off the, the smell of an oily rag. You get used to doing without a whole lot of stuff, but sometimes you don't need a whole lot of stuff. You know, if you're interested in life and people and ideas and music and, and science for me these days, you know, if you've got those driving interests, then... You don't need a whole lot of stuff, I reckon. But if you're going to go into the career of being a musician, you sort of need to be prepared for that because I guess for some people it could become a bit of a shock. Hang on a minute. Where's the money coming from next month? Look in the diary. Whoops. <laughs> yeah, I guess I've always been a sort of a safe musician. You know, like I've always sort of tried to rejig my life around how I can earn a good living from it and not letting my family starve. <laughs> I guess in my heart of hearts, I'd just be a composer from start to finish and spend my time in a recording studio with, with other musicians. And uh, But, you know, you can't always make that work financially. But I love teaching music. It's great. Love passing on the torch to someone else. That's a real buzz. You know, you've got to be patient, I guess, to be a teacher. So you've got a lot of different bits and pieces going on and it sort of sounds like to have a sustainable career as a musician, you need to be able to pull together a lot of different things. I imagine a lot of hopeful young people out there who are thinking they're going to make their, their money as a rock star or maybe these days as like a TikTok musician, I don't know if that's a thing, or YouTuber, etc. That may not be a, the most common way of making your money as a musician. Yeah, well, there there are a lot of ways. I suppose the main one is performing. You know, you used to be able to make money from a recording career, but, you know, that's pretty much off the cards these days unless you are the one in 100,000 who of people who, you know, it's such a slim number of people get through to be able to do it these days, largely because of, you know, the old invention of the MP3 file, basically, and music going online and the musicians. I'm not quite sure how this equation works, but everyone's ended up with less money through, you know, streaming. Yeah, it, it, it is definitely a tough one being a musician financially. I mean, I hate to start on this note, but it's very precarious for sure. The poor old musician often does it because they love it and they would possibly do it anyway, even if they weren't able to make the money. Sign of a good musician, by the way. 
which is a dangerous position to be in. Yeah, it's the sign of a genuine musician, mind you. I think to do it well, you've really have got to have some sort of entrepreneurial blood in your veins, which I, I have a bit of, but not much. Certainly people who are really into that side of it can do quite well. If you're naturally absolutely brilliant, you'll probably make a go of it anyway. They just seem to be born to do it. But as I said, it's a fantastic life. I mean, me and my musical mates just love it to bits. You know, I've, I've got friends who, who are very make a very precarious living from it, but they love their lifestyle and it's all very people-oriented. You know, you meet fantastic people and you get into inter- very interesting situations. And I mean, if you do gigs, if you're not doing regular same pub every Friday night or something, but you're out doing random gigs, it's just a fantastic life because you, you pack your gear into your car on Friday night and drive off and you have no idea what's going to happen that night where you're going to be, who you're going to meet. You walk into a gig somewhere and you set up and you meet people and you learn to fly by the seat of your pants. It's a fantastic training for life in a way. And I imagine that moment of being in front of people and not necessarily knowing who they are or what they're there for would be quite a thrill as well. Well, it is. I'm sort of naturally an introverted sort of person. Playing music is has helped me really get out of my shell. For the first part of my career, I was so happy to just sit in a corner and just play music to people who are enjoying it. That was enough for me. I didn't need any accolades or or anything. But a lot of gigs, you can't do that, of course. You've got to be, hi, I'm Steve. I'm your entertainer for the night. And I find I, I tend to flip from my natural state of being a bit of a quieter sort of person to being a raging extrovert if I just make myself stand up there and go, hi, you know, this is me. And I, I really enjoy it on a totally different level. It's a, if you're naturally sort of more introverted, it's a really good thing to have to do to meet people and get on. And, and you deal with very hairy situations too, you know. You've got to stay good humoured, that's for sure. That's one of the secrets of life. Good, good secret of life and especially good secret of life if you're dealing with the general public. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, always have measured response, you know. <laughs> Don't have too many knee-jerk reactions. Yeah, be cool. How have you ended up on this path? Like, did you always know as a young person that you were really into music or was it something that sort of like hit you at some point in your schooling life? So I played drums when I was a kid. I was probably 10 or 12 when I started. I mean, I didn't think it was anything sort of serious. It was just something the kid wanted to do was to play some drums. So I did that for a few years and ended up with a drum kit and played in a, in the local brass band, sort of marching band, and learned my chops there and then fell in love with guitar and ended up selling my drum kit to get my first electric guitar from memory. So I guess the writing was on the wall, but I remember taking one of those tests at school, a career test, where you have a career advisor come and visit and give you all these forms and tick boxes and things, and they worked out I should have been an interior decorator, which <laughs> probably the last thing on earth I would have thought of. But they must have picked up that I was had a bit of an artistic side, I guess. And I don't think I realised even then that was... But I think by year 10, 11, I was starting to feel, yeah, I think this is what I'm going to do. It's really inside me. You know, it was a very internalised sort of thing with me. Rather than wanting to necessarily get out on stage and strut my stuff, it was just there was this music inside me, you know. I left school on my 17th birthday when school and I disagreed about what I should be doing at school. I was a very restless spirit at that age, you know. I was very reacting against the school and reacting against my teachers and reacting against everything and and not behaving very well. I was a pain in the butt for my teachers, for sure. And uh, they they said to me, look, you know, you toe the line, you do what we want you to or get out, and uh, chatted with mum and dad, and they said, okay, let's just do something else. They were so good about it. 
I went and looked in the paper for bands to join and found a band in the city that sounded interesting and, and uh, did an audition. Might have done a couple maybe. I got, got the gig. And on about the second rehearsal, the uh, keyboard player said, uh, Steve, uh, can you teach guitar? And I said, yeah, yeah, I can teach guitar, sure. I've had students. Well, I'd had, I think I'd had three students. And he said, well, get, come into Alan's music, you know, meet the boss and had an audition and played some jazz and played some folk music and played a whole lot of styles of music on the guitar. And much to my amazement, got the gig as long as I could start the following Monday. I remember walking out and, and turning my head to the boss and saying, oh, by the way, how many students will I have? And he looked through his books and said, oh, 55 a week. And part of me went, oh, my God, how am I going to do this? But I very quickly found out that's what I wanted to do. It was great. Loved it. I guess what was in me came out, you know, it's sort of some sort of deeper understanding of music, I guess. It was fantastic. And immediately sort of keyed into this community of, of, of other music teachers that, which were in the building. There's probably a dozen other music teachers, all employed by Alan's Music up on the 10th floor, and then got to rub shoulders with other bands and, you know, go out and see bands in the city. I was so lucky looking back. Just right place at the right time. Fell on my feet. Because so many people who can play guitar or do any kind of skill, they can't necessarily teach it at all. Yeah, yeah. Well, often the best musicians, you know, are not the best teachers. Because, you know, the really, really good musicians probably don't have the patience. Well, certainly not for a beginner. It's a different skill. Teaching is definitely a different skill to performing. They're very interlinked, but they're also very different. Because you've got to be very patient. Helps a lot if you're really patient. I have noticed that to make a career, and this is probably the same with anything in the arts, you know, whether it be painting or sculpture or producing or, you know, film or whatever it is, that you've got to put yourself out there. That I think everything that's been good for me has happened because I've at some point put myself out there and, and become part of the larger collective. And someone says, oh, you're a, you're a composer. Oh, look, have a look at this documentary, you know. Do you reckon you could do this? And if you're not out there to be getting in people's way, then that's just never, ever going to happen. You're not going to be able to sit at home and link into anything, which is the direct opposite of what I wanted to do when I was younger. I, I thought I was going to somehow make a lot of money out of music and, uh, you know, buy a mansion, put a, a six-foot-thick hedge around it and come out every three years to vote and stay indoors and just compose music all my life. I feel like that's what Enya did. I'm pretty sure she managed it, uh, and I think she's got the cats there. I think that's about it. Well, I think, yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, I think people tend to realise that dream at the height of their career. Yeah, so I suppose you've you've got to reach the big time before you can do that. Yeah, everyone else has to go out there and... Meet the public and play whatever song it is of the week over and over again. <laughs> yeah. Well, depending on what you're doing, you know, that's usually a real blast getting out and playing. But you've got to you've got to sort of look after yourself too. So you've, you've got to put yourself in a position where you are still interested in the music. You know, even, even if you're doing stuff over and over a bit, which which every musician does, you've got to make sure that you sort of culturally feed yourself so that you you're not going to get bored. I mean, if if you reach the point where you're bored, you're stuffed really. So and it did happen to me probably when I was in my 40s I guess I was doing I somehow was doing a whole lot of gigs that were really boring and very unresponsive audiences and you know mostly like bistros where people are eating dinner I turned around one day and thought Steve you're getting bored this is awful you've got to do something to even if you keep these gigs you've got to do something so I 
I worked out how to make myself a loop pedal before there was really such a thing as a loop pedal. Do you want to explain to people what a loop pedal is? So a loop pedal is your... Okay, so here's a, here's a guitar. So there's sort of two parts to guitar playing. There's usually a rhythm guitar part where you might be singing. And then there's the other part, which is the... Where you're playing uh, single notes, a lead guitar solo, you might call it. And if there's just one of you, you, you can't put those two things together. But if you can record the first part on something with a foot pedal, which starts and stops and sort of controls the whole thing, and then play it back through your PA system, then you hear back what you've just played and you can then add another layer over the top. Or occasionally I'll pick up a penny whistle, you know, a little Irish whistle, and do a little Irish whistle solo over the top. Or you could pick up some completely different instrument, you know, you could pick up a drum or a, a tambourine or some bongos or something and, and add another layer. So that's known as looping. And these days you just go into a shop and you spend a couple of hundred bucks and you get one, which you can plug your guitar into. And I believe if you're feeling a little bit technically inclined, you can buy kits on eBay and you can actually like build and program your own one. Oh, I'm sure you could. Yeah, yeah. But in my case, I thought, hmm, I've got a computer that records sound digitally. I, I know how to use a soldering iron. I know about switches and stuff. Hmm. So <laughs> I worked out how to how to deconstruct a computer keyboard, which was a fantastically interesting exercise in itself. And uh, I never knew they were just so clever. Um, and get the guts out of the keyboard, which was a chip with with some little connections that could be soldered. And then I made myself foot pedal with these little springy things that you could push up and down, which were little bits of uh, perspex. And I made myself a bunch bunch of sort of switches with little click switches under them. And inside this foot pedal was the, the guts of the computer keyboard. And then I worked out how to connect that to the input into the computer. And I got to control my audio sampler on my computer with my foot. Yeah, so I'd record my song or, or a little loop of a, a few bars that might loop around in a circle and then uh, then add my, my other creative stuff on top. Really good fun. But, uh, yeah, computer keyboards, they're amazing. I can thank my dad for uh, teaching me to pull apart things and see how they work and then the hard part, putting them back together. Yeah, that's the trick and not losing any of the teeny tiny little screws. Yeah, that's right. Take photos. Just back to you were talking about working as a composer. Can you give some examples of like what kind of work you were doing and what skills you needed to do that kind of work? Because I feel like it's those sounds are things we're exposed to all day, every day, and we often don't think about them or we're not aware of them. Composing music, there's, there's, there's different areas and it's horses for courses. So I'd always written my own music at home when I was a teenager, which was intimately tied in with recording. You know, for me, composing and recording were, were the very same beast. I had a really nice little tape recorder that my old man had given me, which was an interesting one. It had four speeds on it, on this tape recorder. So I very quickly discovered that if you recorded something on one of the speeds and played it back on a different speed, the music was an octave apart. You could record something on, on one speed and have and play it back on the other speed, except a bit double as fast and double as high. Or if you dropped it back onto a lower speed, 
get like a base sort of thing because the speeds were exactly double each other. I'm very glad to hear you say that because I was listening to one of these recordings at double speed because I thought I could edit at double speed. I was wrong. Anyhow, I sounded like a chipmunk and I was like, <laughs> what happened? Yeah. <laughs> Do it. Like, do it. Sounds disaster. good. Like, blow it down again and it's all good again. And I was like, yeah. Familiar. Not great. <laughs> and you can do it on YouTube, of course, now too. They've got a speed control, which is really, really useful. Uh, except their speed control is independent of the pitch. So they've got a little algorithm behind their speed control so that if you have this on, if you have that on your YouTube, and you speed it up, it's instead of, you know, instead of like a chipmunk. And that's very handy for like working out songs and things. Yeah. So getting back to your question. So I'd already fiddled around with technology a lot at home with and pushing the tape recorders to their limits. And, and I used to record one track on one, make sure I'm happy with it, play it back, stick a microphone in front of the speaker, me sit next to the speaker as well with another instrument. Now, at that stage, I was learning fluters. So I'd be playing back the guitar through one speaker, recording it into the second tape recorder while playing the flute at the same time. And then, of course, I'd play that back into the first one and add another layer because I might put a bass on or some drums or something. I sort of learned about the whole recording procedure when I was 16, 17, but it was pretty unsophisticated sort of stuff. I guess I became comfortable with the whole concept of music and technology and how they fit together and the things that you can mess around with to make it a lot of fun. Of course, then they started inventing multi-track tape recorders and it was all so much easier to do. And then the big professional recording systems, you know, became multi-multi-track. Then I, I used to do various bits of recording, first of all at home. So I, I collected this sort of catalogue of all my own compositions at home and I knew I, I wanted to make an album one day with that. And then I was in a whole string of bands and we'd do various bits of recording in studios. Never was there any money involved in any of this. You know, you're just doing it for the love of it. So, and then I started doing a little bit of production for a couple of bands, just sort of making suggestions about different ways they might change their song around or different ways they could record it that interface of musical ideas and te technological side of it, you know, the recording side. So next I would have recorded my first album. I went to the bank and lied and said I needed, I needed a bunch of new recording gear. So I needed to borrow whatever it was, a few thousand dollars. Because I was earning a decent living as a, as a musician and a guitar teacher. I just didn't tell them I was going to blow it all on recording. So I went to Tasmania to a little studio I knew there and uh, recorded my first album, which I did solo. So they had a multi-track recording system, of course, and, and I took my flute and the guitar and my hand drums and bass and the keyboard and hired a synthesizer and then spent a month putting down this album of all these compositions I already had and just fiddling around with changing things around as I recorded sometimes mixed the album and then it sort of languished for a year or two because I couldn't work out how, how to bring about the next stage I couldn't interest a, a record company in it my then girlfriend and I Tammy who's now my wife we screen printed you know we designed the, the covers did all the typefacing took photos very grassroots stuff designed cover uh, we were both at art school then, so we worked out how to do it with screen printing and um, screen printed some sort of mock-up covers, wrote a really nice application with the help of someone who'd applied for Arts Council funding before 
and 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 they gave me some money, which was fantastic, to produce the thing. So we then made a record. The recording studio in Tassie actually made the record and produced it. So I had I had it was like a calling card for a musician, really. When you make an album, you know, this is what I can do. You know, I can pull pull this project into reality. You know, out of nothing. So it's a really nice thing to have. After that was launching myself into the more the public sphere of writing music for, as I was saying before, documentaries and um, and like commercial stuff, you know, for sort of presentations and ads and uh, really, really interesting work. Loved it. And once again, never once thought I can't do this, but I'm not very good at communicating that to other people, you know. That's a very internal thing with me. I'm not saying it in a bragging way. Well, I'm trying not to because there's a lot of people who can brag and brag and brag and they get so much work because that's what you've got to do if you want money from people to make music you've got to absolutely show your enthusiasm and your confidence and so i spent about a decade doing that in the end i just found it too hard it was was probably 90 percent promotion 10 percent actually doing the work the work is really well paid well it was then maybe different now because everyone can produce at home easily well and i think there's so many online libraries like the music for this podcast came from a free online library where you can just sort of pull down and then you've got like fiverr and stuff where you can pay someone like 30 bucks for an intro to your podcast absolutely yeah 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 well you know that's that's sort of sort of the downside of of our technology being so beautiful and easy to use and available to everyone is that everyone can do it easily and even if you only knew have got a smattering of capabilities on an instrument you can do some of that stuff so in one way that's absolutely fantastic because it's very egalitarian but in another way it's very hard for people who are a bit more serious with their music to to go the next step because the market is flooded yeah so it's a two-edged sword but it's funny that what you're saying about music libraries one of the big jobs i did get I went for a, a, an interview with this company that I heard they were making a series of, doc, series of documentaries on sort of Australia, not really Australiana, but Australian technology actually is what it was about. I went and chatted to this guy and from the start of the interview to the end, he was sort of hinting at the fact that they were really just going to use library music. At that stage, there was no free stuff around, but you could access these these libraries and do mock-ups of your documentary or whatever it is in order to, say, sell it to get your funding or or to do practice runs, then to actually use it, you would then pay the fee. So I walked out of there pretty dejected, and I'm driving home thinking, hang on a minute, these libraries he is talking about are American and and European-based music libraries. They're doing a documentary series based on Australia and what we can do. Damn them! How dare they use music from foreign sources, you know? So I, I, I got a bit hot under the collar and rang this guy up and said, listen, this is ridiculous. You should be using homegrown music. And I'd, I'd cooked up an idea in my head. I said to him, look, how about... We'll talk it over, see if we can come up with a price. I'll see if I can give you half price what I'd normally pay as long as I retain the copyright to go and sell this music back to a music library for further use. And he went, oh, yeah, that's a really good idea. So you can do some really good Australian-sounding music, can you? I said, yeah, you bet I can. So I got the job. So it was an 11-part documentary series. And it was only the fact that I was really proactive and told this guy what I really thought, which I don't normally do. I felt like I was suddenly boss of what was going on here, you know? <laughs> He's going, oh, well, if you think that's the best way to do it, let's do it. And that then led to a whole lot more work with other production companies that he was sort of involved with. It was fantastic, actually. But it was yet another lesson in just being proactive and creative and coming up with ideas on the spot. 
And so that was part of my, my decade. Spend a lot of time around South Melbourne hawking my ideas to people who are making, you know, short movies or, or docos or whatever it was. And it's really interesting being given a brief for what people want for their project and then trying to interpret their words of what they want into what you think they mean because music is a very subjective area. Obviously you created something back in the day and maybe it wasn't as successful then as presumably you would have hoped, but it doesn't mean the thing that you put out there is still always out there and it's still there to be discovered, especially today where you can discover all sorts of things, whether it's on eBay or like all that effort is still there. It doesn't disappear. Yeah. Well, my first album, which was the vinyl one from 75, I think I recorded that, that totally out of the blue absolutely out of the blue it's probably about five years ago i had a call from this guy saying oh hi steve my name's scotty i run a little boutique uh, record label i said yeah and he said i suppose you've been um, following your old album sales on ebay have you and i went what uh what'd you say he said you've been following your album on ebay and i i didn't really understand what he was saying and i and i went no scotty sorry you take a step back mate what are you talking about and he said yeah you know your old uh, copies of your album have been passing hands on eBay. <laughs> I said, really? The one from the 70s? And he said, yeah, uh, we'd like to re-release it if you're interested. And I, at that stage, I was sure it was one of my mates having me on and I was accusing him of <laughs> being one of my mates. And anyway, he wasn't. And he, he paid $500 US for this album. I'd, uh, my, my copy, which I'd still had at home, I'd bought in the throwout bin at the Eltham Record Store for a dollar because I'd lost the copy from before that. Yeah, anyway, one thing led to another, and, and it was re-released and became a bit of a thing for, you know, five minutes. Then I had a call from the UK, and there was a UK record company, Fire Records, who wanted to release it for the rest of the world. So that was a bit of a thing for about five minutes too. So they gave me an advance in the way record companies used to, which was able to fund another little recording project I did after that. Yeah, out of the blue completely. So, But I had to wait, what? 40 years or something, to become cool again for five minutes. And it's, it's so different to how it used to be, of course. The ability to sort of pick and choose, or say with music now, is just amazing compared to in the past. I love it. My students are always surprising me with what they come up with. I rely on them to educate me a bit, actually, about what's around now. They seem to sift through it and find all the good musical. They usually find stuff which is really musical. And that's, that's great to be informed by people who are listening to stuff that you aren't listening to. And then you go, oh, wow, this is fantastic stuff. I never would have thought to listen to this. That's a good, good part of being a music teacher. Be being a musician is really interesting sort of in, in other ways because it really turns your ears on to the world around you in the sort of sonic, you know, the sonic landscape sort of way. You become much more aware. The more I've trained myself to really listen closely and intently and in a concentrated way to music, that sort of overflows in just listening to the world around me and to sounds and because we have this massive filter system in our brains to filter out everything except what you are intending to listen to. Have you seen that thing with the uh, with the people passing basketballs between them on the, on the stage, a whole basketball team bouncing across the stage and your, your job is to watch one basketball and see who catches it in the middle of this whole thing a guy in a gorilla suit, I think, walks in and out between all the players across the stage, across the whole stage in full view to the other side. And did you see it? No, I didn't see that. <laughs> Have you seen it? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I think it's a road safety thing, actually. Oh, ah, that's clever. Because, like, and it's true, we're, we're so skilled as humans as focusing in on things that we perceive as sort of valuable to our survival and then missing huge chunks of life. And it's, it's done for totally sensible evolutionary reasons. Evolution has made vast areas of the perception of the world are known to us, that we just don't see them because we sort of don't need to. It's an acknowledged thing with the visual realm, but it's so true in the audio realm as well. A student brings in a song and says, ah, look, I've worked out three of these chords, but I just can't get these two chords here, you know, can you listen to them? And I'll listen through to this song. And so all I'm listening to in the song is the chords. And I'll listen to the song and then he'll go, oh, look, you know, while you're at it, can you can you listen to the bass line and get it for me? And I'll go, oh, is there a bass line too? <laughs> and I won't have heard it because I've been listening to the guitar part. And yet you play the song to a recording engineer and they'll go, oh, isn't that clever the way they've used, you know, a Norman 58 to record the vocals and not the usual blah, blah, blah. And they'll be working out what microphone's been used, you know, and, and they won't have heard anything else. It's like you could play the track to 10 different people in, in the musical area and they'd hear 10 different things. It's incredible. And that's an awesome reflection of how it's our knowledge and exposure to information that makes it possible to hear things and see things. And it's our professional skills that allow us to be able to pull apart these different things and hear different bits and pieces. You mentioned sort of moving through the world and not just hearing musical sounds, but also just out there in the big, bad, wild world. Have you got any examples of things that you've heard that other people may have just completely filtered out? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, I also for a decade ran, ran an educational show called the Talk, Talk, Talk Show, which was me trying to put my sort of knowledge and abilities in music but apply it to still to the audio realm but to speech because I find speech really interesting. The ability to hear tone and to uh, an articulation. I mean, the musical terms and the and the language terms, they just cross over each other so much. I mean, music, musicians and linguists talk about articulation, pitch, you know, downward inflections, uh, tempo, uh, pacing. They're just endless, you know, they're, they're sort of crossover. And so, yeah, it's stuff that's not music in the outside world. Oh, yeah, I mean, even bloody machines make musical sounds because all the interrelationships of the musical sounds which are all quite mathematical, by the way, um, they're, they're relationships between notes. Oh, that's what makes them sound good. How's that, eh? They're mathematically related and the ear likes that, therefore they sound good. The more distantly they're related, the crapper they sound. I better give you some examples, haven't I? Okay, here is, here is what we call an octave. No, let's start even simpler. Two notes that are the same note. Same note. Two different strings on a guitar, they sound great. They've got a ratio of one to one. If we get notes that are a ratio of one to two, that's known as an octave. So I don't know whether you can hear that, but I'm actually playing two notes at once there. Low, high, ratio of one to two. Ratio of two to three, here it comes. Ratio of three to four, here it comes. See how they're all really nice 
And in the olden days, before they knew about the math mathematical relationships, they called them concordant intervals. So you put three of them together. There's your classic. Your classic power chord. are perfectly related mathematical intervals, isn't that right? And then if you get ones that are distantly related, like eight to nine, no, 15 to 16, is it? It sounds really crap. And other ones are, they're the most distantly related mathematical intervals. And if you put about three of them together, you get this. <laughs> the nice ones. Bit more distantly related. Jazzy chords. You know, they're, they're still related, but they're sort of more on the verge. And then jazz goes into more iffy sort of, you know. They're still nice, but they're on the edge of being not, you know, of being a bit weird. Yeah, that's I, I find that really interesting. And it's all because you've got these things called harmonics. And in nature, if you have one sound, say this one, that sound is actually made up of about five different sounds all at the same time. And they all exist in all, all sounds everywhere. You know, if you start playing bass, you suddenly hear bass in every song that you that comes on the radio. Every song, you know, and yet before that you probably didn't even know it existed. It's sort of like the audio equivalent of when you first buy like a red car or something like that and suddenly there's red cars everywhere and you're like, where did they all come from? And it's it's because like you now have an emotional or some sort of connection with this new thing that you're actually able to extract it from the world and it sort of stands out more. Yeah, yeah, that's right because your, your mind is focus. I mean, isn't focus just such an important thing in life? Being able to think about what you want to focus on and then do it, it's such a powerful thing. It's like knowing what, what you want to do, having the good fortune to knowing what you want to do when you're younger is just this massive asset because your energy is focused into one spot and, and achieving stuff. Whereas if you're sort of flailing about trying to find what you want to do, I mean, as good as that is in its own way, mind you, you know, you're not necessarily focusing, focusing your energy on getting somewhere. It's a balance, isn't it? And I think it's the trick is kind of making it work. Whichever pond you happen to sit in, whether you're one of those people who wakes up and is like, yes, I'm going to be that thing, or whether you're more like myself and sort of like, I'll try everything because I have absolutely no attention span. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that's fantastic too, mind you. But it's probably the combination of both that's going to work, isn't it? Definitely. And it's making it work for you. And it's it's not just focus, but also being able to find out the thing that you need to focus on rather than focusing on this other thing, which is a complete white elephant. You're going to end up so far off the track being able to focus and on the right thing. And the right thing, that's right. <laughs> well, I can't tell you the number of years I've wasted focusing on things that <laughs> I should have just been doing what I'm good at, really. But it doesn't necessarily mean they're wasted, I don't think at all. Oh, yeah, that's right. I think on, my old man used to say that, that nothing's ever wasted. You learn from your mistakes as much as you do from your not mistakes. I, th I reckon it's really true. Well, I suppose if, you, if you're keeping your mind and your, and your wits open, you can learn from them. It's not a waste if you've learned from the mistake. Yeah, you do learn from your mistakes.
Yeah, and there's lots of other stuff out there in the world that's that's you know we were talking about music and listening and and, and the outside world. This have we ever talked about reverberant spaces? Don't think so. I don't think so. It could be the reason why I have an amazing little podcasting booth made out of recycled cardboard, though. Ah, yes, yes, yes. So that I don't end up sounding like I'm sitting in a toilet, which I'm not doing, by the way, just everyone who's listening, sitting at a desk like a normal podcaster. Yeah, it's sounding nice and non-reverberant. Look, I tell you what, anyone that's listening is a parent. There's a really, really easy way to embarrass your kids. When you're out having a meal and you're in a restaurant and you're in some smaller part of the restaurant, like a little alcove, you try humming quietly to yourself on lots of different notes until you find the reverberant note, which will suddenly be 10 times as loud as your other quiet little hummed notes. As many as the time I've sat in a restaurant while my wife and kids have been talking and gone, there it is, I just found it. It's a reverberant space. And suddenly you get this really loud, loud humming noise because if you hum on the right note, everyone can hear it around the restaurant and they don't know where it's coming from. And it's such fun. And it's a great way of ending up with some really miffed teenagers, I imagine. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) And in something like a bathroom or a toilet that you'd mentioned, perhaps not so much a toilet but a bathroom where the space is not necessarily just one big square but might be divided off by a a bath or a shower cubicle, you can get two or three or maybe even four different notes that that are reverberant. And that is really fun. Are you able to explain what's going on like I think what is it that's occurring why why do I need to podcast from inside my lovely little baffled cover box you know there are thousands of different musical frequencies if you like from high to low okay so in an enclosed space say you're in a bathroom and you've got a wall that's exact say two meters apart there's going to be one note that's going to be happiest living inside that gap between the walls for instance if you if you clap inside those walls clap you're going to create a sound that bounces between the two walls and creates a little note so so if you clap in the bathroom you're going to create what they call a standing wave you know it's a wave that just goes between two ends endlessly it doesn't go out into the outside world and that's going to be of a certain frequency can you picture that sound travels at a particular speed okay so if you do a clap inside your bathroom you're going to have the sound bouncing at a, at, at a set speed from one wall to the other, bouncing back and to and fro, which is going to create a particular musical note. Now, it may be too low to hear as a note, but you might just hear clap, 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 clap. You know, this, all these claps echoing back at each other. I think you probably would hear a note, though. And so if you hum that note or any multiple of that note, you're going to get a reverberant sound. In other words, it's going to be a resonant sound, I should say, and it's going to be louder than other notes that you hum because that space is sort of accommodating to that frequency or that uh, pitch. It's suddenly going to be louder. And so, and it's very hard to create a space, sounds like as you've discovered, where you've got none of those because, you know, any, ro- any room that's got walls is going, to, is going to be happier to hear, if you like, certain musical notes uh, than others. So if you're playing music in that room, you're not aware of it at the time, but it's it's creating louder spots in the audio spectrum and softer spots. 
And if an engineer, recording engineer, walked into that room, they'd go, oh, my God, you know, the lower upper mids are so loud, I can't possibly mix in this room. Or can't you hear that bass resonating away? In recording studios, they have to try and create a space which is usually, uh, what's the word, uh, sort of unsymmetrical, so that the wall in front of you is slightly different to the wall behind you, slightly different width, and on slightly different angles. If you walk into a recording studio, especially in the mixing room, the control room, and you look really carefully at the roof and the floor and the walls, nothing is going to match up with anything else. They're just a little bit off. So you basically want the sound in that control room to sound as if you're just out in the middle of the desert with two speakers next to you with no resonance at all happening. I think I'll just like add a little bit to that. So for example, that's why music sounds better when you're wearing good headphones because it's not being bounced around a room and it comes up a lot in like podcasting forums, but obviously it's a really big problem in music recording as well, is that the sound reflects off the surfaces. So just like any wave, if you're in the bath and you make a wave, the wave will come back to you. You're getting that same thing because sound waves are just like waves. You send them out, they're going to bounce off hard surfaces and you want either confuse the wave so that's where you have the different angles happening or if you have like I've got an amazing uh, system here where I've glued lots and lots of teeny tiny little um, packing peanuts inside my cardboard the waves can't reflect or bounce off that nicely so I'm not getting that sort of harsh noise and it's also not benefiting one wave over another yeah how long did you spend gluing these peanuts longer than I'd like to admit no um (laughs) no no no, it only took like an evening, yeah. There was a box full of peanuts that arrived. Oh, wow. Well. Fantastic. Bath bomb kit in it. And the cat was going bonkers over them. And then I was like, I have a plan. Because until then, I was recording sitting on the floor with a blanket over my head. <laughs> <laughs> Amelia, what are you doing? Oh, I'm recording a podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it seems to be working pretty well. Although I can notice the lower mids, there's a little bit of a high there. Well, it can't all be perfect. <laughs> Yeah, so so people go to great expense and care, yeah, to record, to, to, to make their recording setups, yeah, so that you can listen on the speakers, not just on the headphones. Yeah, I mean, headphones are fantastic. Let's face it, good pair of headphones is great. But there's just nothing like sitting in the studio where you've just finished recording your album, you've just finished mixing it, you've had your mind on the job in all the detail and you're now going to listen back to it in one hit, the whole thing through the massive, massive Yamaha speakers that you couldn't possibly afford at home in the most perfect listening environment on earth and you you sit back and make a cup of tea and listen to it and it is gorgeous. And you're never, ever again going to hear it like that unless you go back to the studio and say can i listen to my album through your speakers again it's uh, and even then you won't get to hear it for the first time again for the first time yeah that's right yeah but it's ah, oh, it's a massively glorious experience the only thing i can think of is sitting right next to or right inside like a symphony orchestra or uh like a big band you know a 50-piece big band duke ellington style Uh, There's nothing like being in the middle of a band as opposed to just listening to a band, I think. I'll tell you what I do love. I love playing at a gig with a small band. You know, you might have three or four people in a band 
there's hardly anyone in the audience for the first set, you know, where you're at some some public function where people are going to arrive in another 10 minutes or a wedding where people are yet to arrive and your first set in the quiet of this venue and you've got this fantastic sound coming through your sound system. It's just such a treat. I love it. And it's a physical feeling as well. Like it's not just, oh, there's nice sounds, but the sounds actually have a physical element for you as a person and some sound, some of those feelings are going to be nicer than others. And... Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you can definitely play aggravating sounds, <laughs> which is good fun too, with the unrelated, you know, noisical sounds. I mean, some noise in music's great, you know, punk rock, full of noise. It's interesting, that's also reflected in the fact that when you make an MP3 file, you know, say you get a really high-quality uh, musical track, you know, say off a CD, highest quality you can get, and you get a piece of punk rock with lots of crashing of cymbals and distorted guitars and yelling vocals, and you crunch that down to an MP3 file, say you do three minutes of that, and then you do three minutes of fine classical music, and you crunch that down into an MP3 file, there'll be completely different sized MP3 files for the same three minutes, because one of them's full of noise, and the other one's got almost zero noise. They're all musically related sounds in the classical music, yeah, but a bit of noise is good, used not too much. Well, it's like, it's like any kind of artistic expression. Like as people, we enjoy a certain level of discomfort because it sort of kicks you out of not listening or it kicks you out of not looking and it makes you engage with something. But go too far and you're just going to be like, ugh, I want it to stop. It's like, <laughs> yeah. it's like people watching like horror films, like we do that, even though it's uncomfortable, there's a part of us that's drawn to a certain level of discomfort. Oh, yeah, I think you're right there, for sure. There's the sort of absolute banal at one end and there's the unbearable at the other and every, everyone's got their spot. I mean, I imagine, you know, the people who listen to the noisiest possible recorded music, like, uh, well, I call it screamo. I forget what, the, what they call it these days, but, you know, with someone totally screaming rather than singing in musical notes, you know, it's just the scream thing, and totally distorted guitars and totally, you know, overloaded drums and stuff. Even they couldn't bear to listen to a jackhammer going for three hours, which is complete, you know, complete just noise. They're going to go, no, 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 I want my comfortable level of level of discordance. Mm, this thing that my little cochlear hairs have got used to. Yeah, yeah, and your, your brain's got used to processing it too, I think. It's interesting because sometimes, sometimes when my students bring in songs, like if they bring in something with really heavily distorted guitar, I find it very hard to hear the musical pitch behind a very, very distorted guitar. And yet they, this inexperienced musician who's, you know, guitarist who's only been playing for a few months, but have been listening to this style of music for ages, they can hear it. They can hear through the noise to the, hear, the, hear the note behind it. My ear just wants to listen to all the noise. Well, in an involuntary sort of way. Then the second week they come back and we work on the same track, suddenly I can hear it, able to separate the noise from from the uh, from the note, so yeah, it's what you're used to, isn't it? What you get used to processing. It'll all be about pattern recognition and what our brains. We've been exposed to this thing before, so you're kind of not processing it like it's a new thing. There's all this pre-information that you've stored about it. Oh, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. I think you're you're dead right. Because as you know, kids can grow up in any environment on Earth, and they'll just think, oh, this is this is just what life's about, and they sort of process the world as against what they're used to, hey. 
Yeah, it's your baseline. Yeah. It's interesting that that goes for sounds as well. But the same, like, to draw an analogy with food, because it's something I'm relatively exposed to. It's the same with food. Like, if you're exposed to a lot of spices and hot flavors as a child, that's just going to be your baseline. Whereas if you're exposed to a more bland diet, again, that'll be your baseline. And there'll be different levels of processing to move between those two different things. And I suppose your your actual sensory mechanisms, you know, your ears, your eyes, your, your taste buds, kick in in a sort of physical part of that too, hey? I think it's important to remember that like there's the psychological processing of these things, whether it's sound or images, etc. But there's also the physical, you're physically experiencing that thing. Yes, so true. Very interesting. There's a whole other thing about like learning difficulties in there as well, particularly with like sound processing and all sorts of stuff. Well, you know, I definitely have had and probably still have um, students who have the audio processing delay syndrome, I think it's called. I know in the past, you know, I've had kids, I thought, oh, gee, this this kid's not very bright, for want of a better way of putting it. And then I'm thinking before I was actually alerted to this the phenomenon, uh, and then I'd get talking to their teachers one day and they'd say, oh, by the way, did you know they've got audio processing delay syndrome? And I'd go, well, what does that mean exactly? And they'd sort of walk me through it a bit and how they can't take audio information in and process it at the same speed as everyone else has. And a couple of these kids have turned out to be really bright. I mean, genuinely bright kids. And I, at the first, had totally the opposite, you know, take on them, I suppose. Uh, And if you just slow things down and give the information a little bit at a time and then take breaks between what you're saying <laughs> they go oh yeah 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 i can do that dun, 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 you know and away they'll go on their instrument it's really interesting and that's part of the challenge of teaching is like reserving that prejudgment of people and then adapting as well and being like just because someone doesn't seem bright in this way that i've always assumed you had to be bright doesn't mean that they really aren't you've got it in a nutshell there that's me these days too i just always reserve judgment and go how can i get inside this person's head and think a little bit the way they do that's by the way in teaching music definitely that is such a big thing the big thing is working out from one heartbeat to the next how how this person who's sitting in front of you is taking in this information that you're giving them because often it's quite conflicting with the way you think about things and so as a teacher you've got to sort of work out where they're coming from and then give the information in the right way that they'll take it in and then boy do they speed up i had one student who was sort of going along okay not doing anything special and then one day i mentioned something about a phone number and he reeled off this phone number to me i can't remember whose it was and i said gee that was pretty quick and he said oh, i'm a numbers guy you know for instance your number is and your mobile's and you know my second cousin's number is and he was quite serious and uh, we looked at each other and and he said to me i suppose we should be learning off tab shouldn't we which is a, like a number based way of learning guitar and i said i suppose we should and boy was he quick at it not only could he take it in quickly but he could remember it quickly and i think you multiply that by about 10 you know lots of different ways some people really learn from what something sounds like and they'll work out what their fingers have to do to make them sound like the way that their ears are telling them and other people are totally the opposite way they've first of all got to work out where to put their fingers and then it'll create this sound which they then have to learn that the two go together you know they won't naturally 
put A together with B. Other people learn in a more systematic sort of way, like they've got to learn a like a top downy sort of way. They've got a if they've got an overview of how a particular song goes or a particular bit of music, and then you they you'll start from the top and work down. They'll get it like that's me. I just think that way, top down. And other people completely bottom up, which is my wife. She's a completely bottom up thinker. She starts with details, puts them together, and eventually puts that together to form something that's more cohesive, sort of whole, and then end up with an overview. I couldn't possibly do that. I've got to do it the other way around. And part of the trick is knowing how students learn and like tailoring it to them, but it's really important to also know how you learn as well so you can like take in information better and then share it with people better too. And uh, in a marriage, it's... I think you know what I'm going to say there. It's just really handy to know how the other person thinks. Well, it's respectful too, I think. Oh, of course, because and they've both got their own. Isn't that good? We're all different, eh? Very boring if we're all the same. It's interesting that some of us think some way and some of us think another way. Just like to ask you, is there anyone you'd like to give a virtual high five to or a shout out to who's doing an awesome job at the moment and who just deserves a little bit of recognition? Sure. I would like to send a high five to everyone, almost who are just everyone who's doing such a fantastic job at the moment. They are crazy times. And I think the health workers have been amazing, putting themselves in the firing line. Just imagine doing that, actually going to the coalface where it's all happening and knowing you might not come out of this alive or unscathed. And I think the pollies have been amazing. I think everyone's been amazing. I think just everyone is, I think everyone's doing the best they can. And I find it really a heartening thing about humanity. And I think as the other side of that, we've just got to cut everyone slack. You know, if you can cut someone some slack one day, do it. It's just everyone's stressed worried about their, where their next dollar is going to come from. Um, things have got to be reorganised at the last minute. I know my teaching schedule has been all over the place and I just go, whatever, it's crazy times. Someone's cancelling for the third time in the last day. <laughs> Rescheduling. Yeah, so be it. They're crazy times. So we're all in it together. We've all got to get through it together. We'll get there. Be kind to people. It's working. We are getting there and... Sprinkling a little bit of compassion here, there, and everywhere is sort of, um, it's a good reminder that we're all, everyone is doing their best. Thanks to you, Amelia. Fantastic. Thanks for being so interested in the world. Ah, no worries. (laughs) If you like this podcast, you're a little legend, and you should check out our website at avidresearch.com.au and sign up to our amazing email newsletter. No spam, only email updates and maybe some exclusive content sometime. Follow us on social media to ask us questions or just to dob in people for interviews. 